1: hi and welcome to radio motherboard i'm jason kebler and this is our first episode of 2017 sorry for the delay and hope you've all had a good holiday and new year etc etc i'm just gonna get right into this week's episode
0: man you know like if believing in facts is a is a act of resistance well i guess so
1: Dozens of scientists working at schools like the University of Pennsylvania, Carnegie Mellon, the University of Toronto, and a handful of other institutions are frantically working on a series of projects to preserve government science from alteration or deletion under the Trump administration.
2: I'm Nick Shapiro. I am the executive director of EDGI, the Environmental Data and Governance Initiative, which is a network of North American social scientists, environmental and physical scientists, lawyers and other information and environmental professionals that are all sort of banding together to document and advocate for the vital importance of uh, evidence-based environmental policy. We've been entirely created in the last month and a half. So we have 50 members across over, I think, 23 different institutions.
1: So this was a direct response to Trump's election?
2: Absolutely. There's a sense of anticipation and foreboding that is both hanging over us and motivating us to be working as hard as we can up until the administration. There's been a, a sort of a wellspring of support. At every juncture, more people are tapping their friends and tapping their colleagues. The, the purity and ease of collective action has been perfectly antithetical to some of the dark and disconcerting actions that have been unrolling at the federal level of our, of our government. EDGY and other
1: groups are holding hackathons and working with the Internet Archive and Library of Congress's End of Term Archive to download and rehost terabytes of climate data and other scientific data from every .gov website. This includes data from NOAA, NASA, the EPA, and many other agencies. The effort is often focusing on hard-to-access databases and apps that can't be downloaded by traditional web crawlers. In this episode, we'll be checking in with Shapiro and Bethany Wigan, who studies censorship and the environment at the University of Pennsylvania's Environmental Humanities Lab, which is holding events later this week to help archive this data.
0: The policy works to download data, save it, preserve it, and re-upload it in a safe and responsible manner with metadata that makes it usable for researchers in various fields.
1: In Toronto, there was a guerrilla archiving event to download as much website data as is possible.
2: One of the main things that was happening at the archiveathon in Toronto is focusing on websites and archiving websites and the linked documents and data sets on websites. Websites are what we think is going to be changed most swiftly. This is also, what we saw during the transition to the Bush 2 administration, a lot of these links went dead. Data was removed from websites very quickly. So it may not seem of tremendous import that this website data be maintained, but it is important not only for scientists, but also for the general public that's interested in radon testing or understanding the air quality impacts of living on the fence line of a oil and gas extraction site. There's also an interest in preserving not just data, but also the apps that make large scale data accessible to a large number of people. You know, apps such as uh, greenhouse gas equivalency calculator or sea level rise calculator that a lot of uh, urban developers are using to project where and how to build along our shoreline.
1: This all might sound pretty paranoid, but as Shapiro mentioned, there is a precedent For conservative administrations censoring and deleting scientific information. A 138 page report published in March 2007 by the Government Accountability Project found that the George W. Bush administration systematically changed scientists' press releases, misrepresented scientific findings to Congress, and neglected or deleted information on government websites. Similarly, in Wisconsin, the administration of Governor Scott Walker has deleted or changed climate information on the state's Department of Natural Resources website. And in Canada, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper restricted government scientists' access to the press.
2: These are not paranoid precautions, but these are historically informed actions that are taking seriously the rhetoric of the incoming administration. In 2007, the Bush administration attempted to cut 2.5 million from the EPA library's budget, an 80% cut. And that was sort of touted as a cost-cutting measure. It was just to slim the budget. But internal reports stated also that sort of full library access and access to its researchers saved some $7.5 million worth of staff time. So the politically motivated nature of that cut was writ large in the discrepancy between the way it was sold and its actual economic impacts."
1: Wiggin and Shapiro expect that we'll see this sort of gradual move to censor, delete, and neglect things rather than a show of bravado from the administration. Beyond trying to preserve the data, the scientists are, well, being scientists. They will be monitoring the Trump administration's action after inauguration and, if necessary, Publish scientific papers about what they find.
0: Immediately when I think of censorship, I don't necessarily think of data being deleted. I think of like crazy instances of book burning, not crazy, but spectacular. Like you think, oh, that's censorship. I know what that is. It's when, you know, books are burned and things go away. But as somebody who thinks a lot about censorship and historical instances of it, um, it happens usually in much more... Subtle ways, and it's not quite so black and white. And so I think one person's censorship is another person's NC17 rating, right? It's key agencies which are helping to meet climate goals and which do a lot of the climate data. Gathering and maintenance of the websites that make data accessible to research communities and policymakers, that we didn't think like, oh, everything is going to go away, you know, on day one. I think we were all here in Philadelphia maybe thinking like this is probably like more susceptible to kind of slow starvation, like resources would gradually be cut, programs would be more difficult to maintain, maybe agencies would have a hard time fulfilling their rules. We started to really think. Very carefully about how it's actually pretty easy to make data really difficult to access, not necessarily that it would just be like deleted and magically gone, (laughs) although, you know, that might happen but that it would be relatively easy with changing priorities at key agencies, such as the EPA and the Department of Energy, NASA, NOAA. It would be not hard to move things in such a way that it was really hard to find them. The premises of the Data Refuge project is to say that it's a lot less likely that data will go away if people are aware that it might. So we think of Data Refuge in a way as really uninsured policy. And with any insurance policy, you buy fire insurance not because you want to burn your house down, but because you don't want your house to burn down. And we think, I mean, I use that analogy all the time when I talk about the project because I think it really makes a lot of sense. We are not saying like we want the house to burn down. We are not saying we want instances of censorship to happen.
1: The researchers have found themselves in uncharted territory playing the role of opposition activists, staying up late into the night writing algorithms, downloading data, and wondering what happens next.
0: There are days where the really generative collaboration that has occurred in various sites when people get together and say, you know what, we're going to help build Data Refuge. I think there's a real sense of energy and hope And that feels really good. I think for a lot of people I've heard from so many people in Indianapolis and Los Angeles and Michigan and Toronto and Boston and New York, it's great to hear. And then there's also that feeling of like, but you know, I direct an environmental humanities program, like, why am I doing this? Right? And then that worry at three in the morning of like, gosh, can we really make a difference? And can we do this? And then coming back and being here in the Penn Libraries and having this team of amazing tech specialists who have just been, you know, in the Philly tech community, really pitching in like unbelievable amounts of pro bono help, but also pro bono offers of server space and technical know-how. And so sometimes it feels like, wow, this is really important. It's really important, one, for the data and two, for the political community.
1: A lot of the people who are involved in this are very good research scientists and archivists and professors. Is there a sense that not that you're wasting your time, but can you believe that you have to spend time doing this?
0: No, (laughs) to be honest. I mean, I, I really can't. And everyone who is working on this is doing this in addition to their day job. Like this is not my day job. I want to be really clear about this. But I feel really lucky to have so many collaborators on this who have also realized that the stakes are so high that you have to try. I mean, one of the things in the morning, gloomy moments, you know, I think each of us probably who's involved in the project has these moments of like, wow, like this is so hard. Like, is it really worth it? And then we think, but there isn't really an alternative. Like This will have to be the best we can do for now, and we'll make it really good because we have some pretty amazing know-how on board and some real resources behind this project. But do we feel like we should be doing this in an ideal world? No, but we don't live in an ideal world. We live in a world where the president-elect does not believe in facts. I have recently found myself quoting, of all people, Senator John McCain. You know, I've never in my life quoted the Republican senator from Arizona, but he has a great quote which says, you know, facts are stubborn things. And I think that that is a really important thing to cling to and to just say, actually, at some point, that these facts must be preserved and we can help them to stick and remain stubborn by providing the kind of social context but also the infrastructure to make sure the data stays accessible and available and that you know I don't know maybe I'm like a person uh, a a historian too much and too much a child of the enlightenment but I do actually think like facts will have their day like truth will win eventually (laughs) right I hope so (laughs)
1: Thanks so much for listening to Radio Motherboard. We have so much more about these efforts up on our website. You can find them under my byline. If you want to help this effort or donate, you can go through a group called 314 Action at 314action.org. You can also check out Edgy at envirodatagov.org. That's envirodatagov.org. And the PPEH Lab is at ppehlab.org. On Friday and Saturday, January 13th and 14th, They will be holding events in Philadelphia. Learn more about it at ppehlab.org slash events. Radio Motherboard is a production of Vice Media. It was produced by me, Jason Kebler, and mixed and mastered by Tim Barnes. If you like us, please rate us on iTunes and tell your friends. We'll be back next week.